Last night we had um, Ajahn Jamnian's visit. Kind of a, a major event. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, for me, it was very um, joyful. I really enjoyed his presence and um, found his teaching very um, relevant. And um, there's just something very lovely about his presence. And uh, it also slightly blew my mind, I suppose. those kind of um, experiences that you just don't quite know what to think about. <laughs> what, what, what category do we put, do we put this in? <laughs> and uh, my sense is that it's actually very good for us to have those kind of experiences. Um, because uh, so for, for so much of our lives, there's, there's kind of we have a, we have a system of classification and things can go in very neat boxes. This is okay. That's absolutely fine. This is wonderful. Um, that's definitely not okay. And uh, with uh, Ajahn Jamnian, there was just nowhere to put it really. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as I said, I think that's very good for us. Realizing just how how much of our lives we're comparing and uh, contrasting ourselves with other people, tendency to um, judge ourselves, to measure ourselves either according to some kind of 
um, standard that we construct, or else um, according to one another, and uh, the way that we label people and make judgments about people. Uh, this one's okay, that one's pretty much okay, that one's definitely not okay. And uh, I see myself doing it, both about myself and about other people. And um, I realize just what a very unfortunate um, habit that is. Um, even making nice judgments about people, putting people in a kind of favorable box, putting ourselves in a favorable box, is still um, really to, um, it's not a kindness. It's um, a way of limiting ourselves and limiting each other rather than allowing one another to, to really be fully and completely what they are and to allow ourselves to be fully and completely what we are. All these ways, seem to be coming around to the same theme of, of selfhood, all these ways that we um, create a sense of, of selfhood, um, uh, a fixed perception of ourselves and, and of one another. I mean, the fixed perception can change, but nonetheless it is a fixed perception that is very different from the reality um, of the person that we're in contact with. And uh, perhaps one of the delightful things about someone like Ajahn Jamyan is that he doesn't do that, um, either about himself or about anybody else. Uh, one just had the sense of uh, something very delightful, delightful kind of fluidity about his whole presence and his way of uh, relating uh, to the situation here. And one can have a sense, I think one of the things why it's, why it's delightful is because it's liberating. It's like a way of liberating us from viewing ourselves in a fixed, solid way. Um, so I can see this is something certainly that, that I would like to aspire to, to be able to relate to myself and to relate to all the people I meet in that, in that way. And uh, clearly it happens sometimes, maybe much, much of the time, but um, just to see the danger of, of fixing one another and fixing ourselves. I was saying this afternoon in one of the groups, just about, um, I think it was this afternoon, it was this morning, the Buddha's um, instruction, uh, which comes uh, comes up very often um, in certain collections of the teachings, uh, where he says something like, "You know, if you compare yourself, you think you're you're better than somebody else. That's wrong view." And if you think that you're worse than somebody else, that's wrong view. And if you think you're sa- that you're the same as somebody else, that also is wrong view. 
Any kind of uh, comparing is a fixing not only of oneself, but of the other person. And uh, as we all know, there's no fixed, solid person uh, in any of these beings here. Uh, We're all a continuous flow of conditions. Um, in the ultimate sense. The body is continuously changing and the states of mind are continuously changing also. Uh, Conventionally speaking, there is a a degree of fixity. We have a a mind, we have a designation, uh, we have some of us have jobs, a profession, a label that we can give ourselves. Uh, we also have um, a position in our family, uh, son, daughter. Uh, and we, we, may, we may be a daughter and a mother, maybe a daughter and a mother and a grandmother, um, or a granddaughter, or a sister, or a brother, cousin. Half sister, half brother, <laughs> stepsister, stepbrother. In these ways that we relate within a family. And these are all um, absolutely true from a conventional point of view. Um, in the world of convention, there are these ways that we have of uh, designating. Uh, each other in relation to one another. And uh, in certain of the Asian cultures, the way that you're referred to within the family um, is is according to your, um, whether you're like the oldest sister or the older sister or the younger sister. It's all very, very clearly defined. but according to Buddhist teachings, there's a very clear distinction between these designations, these labels, and um, the ultimate truth of who and what we are. You know, so certainly we have relationships, and within, with our, within our monastic community we have relationships, like I'm senior to Sister Chitapala because I've been a nun for longer than she has. So we have a certain, um, you know, I sit in a certain place and she sits in another place and we relate with each other in a particular way. Uh, but in terms of Dhamma, in terms of practice, um, there's no such distinction. And in fact, one of the things I really love about all of this is the uh, uh, that it's not on the basis of our attainment. So, um, even though I've been a nun for longer than Sister Chittapala, doesn't mean that there aren't uh, you know, that we can't learn from each other. Um, and similarly, within this whole group of people, I I, I learn from you all all the time. And uh, I really like that because um, it makes life very rich. We're not fixed into um, the role that we have. So 
my designation right now is is teacher. I'm Ajahn Chandasiri, and I'm I'm here to teach you. Um, so that's a conventional relationship. Uh, but also, I I recognise that I c- I can learn from you also. Um, sort of in a in a in a more ultimate sense that we can all learn from each other. We can all support each other. Um, Several people have um, commented on the phrase I used the other day when I spoke about the unshakable deliverance of the heart. This um, wonderful phrase uh, that is used to describe like perfect liberation. Um, and I think maybe for some of us it's, it's very refreshing because um, when we come on retreat we can think that we're coming to learn how to meditate and to get our practice together. <laughs> this idea of um, attaining something, um, getting good at something, being the best, uh, getting full marks for our practice. Our report card at the end of the retreat says, well done, <laughs> you got a gold star. Um, and in one sense, that's what we're here for. We're here to practice and to to cultivate uh, certain skills, uh, like the quality of presence that I keep talking about, mindfulness, cultivating mindfulness, cultivating the capacity to uh, to be present with whatever's happening. Um, but really. Um, practice in uh, the way that I understand it goes far beyond um, say becoming good at concentration and perhaps mindfulness is is, is, is really what I'm talking about but um, even that as a term feels a little bit narrow and yeah the unshakable deliverance of the heart feels um, so it's getting closer I think maybe we can all in some way relate to this and I was encouraging some people today to think about you know what what we mean by the unshakable deliverance what is it that we're trying to deliver ourselves from and I think it, it, in a kind of at a intuitive level maybe it, it's something that resonates for us There's something kind of inspiring about it but uh, I think for, for some you know Certainly, when people commented on it, there was a kind of puzzle there. You know, what, what, what does that actually mean? It sounds very nice, but what does it actually mean? You know, and how on earth do you do it? Uh, so I thought maybe this evening, just to uh, take a little time to reflect around uh, this uh, phrase and what it might mean for us, how we how we can relate to it. You know, so that it's not something that is too kind of grand and lofty that we can never possibly hope to get to. Um,
and it's actually very, very simple. And uh, I can see in myself at the moment a, a real desire to express it in as clear a way as possible and not to take too long about it because I have a sense that some of you are quite tired. Um, so, and when I was thinking about it before, I was remembering um, something else that I really love, which is um, when the Buddha is talking about um, uh, the way of practice and uh, what he says is, he said something like that um, because of not understanding, not seeing clearly four things, uh, you as well as I talking to his disciples, have had to wander through countless lifetimes in the realm of samsara. But having understood these four noble truths, the truth of suffering, origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, the way leading to the cessation of suffering, uh, finally there is a way to escape uh, from the uh, realm of samsara, uh, the, the realm of, of, of um, rebirth, birth and rebirth, and uh, this constant realm of becoming. And I, I guess for me, what I what I like is just the sense of, you know, that the Buddha also um, wandered through countless lifetimes in this realm of samsara. And uh, that for many lifetimes, he um, each lifetime, I mean, there's, there's the, the Jataka tales, which are the tales of his previous lifetimes, kind of like mythical tales, really. Um, just, and how in, in each lifetime he would perfect one or other of the um, parameters, the um, uh, ten, ten perfections. Uh, were they? I can't remember them. Dana, generosity, sila, um, ethical conduct, uh, nekama, renunciation, panya, discrimination or discernment, wiriya, effort. Anti patience, such a truthfulness. Um, Aditana, resolve. Um, metta, kindness. Upeka, equanimity. And so finally, in his final um, birth, when he um, finally attained to perfect liberation, um, he had perfected these qualities, and so he was able to um, liberate himself from the realm of samsara. So samsara is the, um, it's what we're all involved in. <laughs> uh, caught in it to, to varying degrees. And uh, basically, it's, it's just wanting things to be nice. <laughs> wanting things to be pleasant and comfortable. <laughs> Uh, to find some kind of comfortable, pleasant resting place, and uh, you know, so we we try to get ourselves physically comfortable. We try to um, get ourselves like comfortable in in terms of material 
well-being. We try to get ourselves comfortable through um, succeeding in various ways, or uh, through being famous, or you know, well-known, or having a position. And uh, you know, just making things all right. And my sense is partly the reason why you're all here is because you've begun to see that it's completely hopeless. If this following of desire, you know, the desire to get rid of what we don't like, the desire to, to find some permanent peace and happiness, or some uh, position for ourselves, some standing place, some firm position, so I can really feel that I'm, I'm here, and I exist, and I matter, and I'm all right, and I'm going to be all right forever. There's this kind of, you know, when I talk about it, it sounds ridiculous, we can laugh. But um, how much of the time are we trying to do that? And so how, how much of our life is a kind of a, a continuous sort of restless sort of manipulation of things, either externally or in our own minds, so that we, we feel okay about ourselves? You know, when when we when we don't feel okay, so the kind of movement to try to make ourselves feel okay. It's kind of interesting little image. I don't know why these things pop into my head, but anyway, they do. Um, at Chithurst years ago, I remember we used to have a cat called Babu. And those of you who have had cats will know that cats have a tremendous dignity. You know, they, they, they're cool. Cats are cool. <laughs> and, you know, if, if, if they, um, you know, fall out of a tree, somehow or other they manage to right themselves so that they land. And they're cool. They, they, they get up and they walk away as if nothing had happened. And if for some reason they don't manage to land okay, they, they kind of somehow or other manage to get themselves up and you know, just there's a clear sense I, I, that, you know, well, I hope nobody noticed that. And they, <laughs> they carry on with life as though, you know, they were completely all right. Cool. And um, we used to have a conservatory at Tidhurst. And um, we used to have the windows of the conservatory open sometimes. And there was a kind of pond uh, inside the conservatory, and there were lots of plants. It was a very, very nice, sort of leafy, kind of cool place. And uh, one day I was sitting in there talking with somebody, and uh, Babu jumped through the window and landed in the pond. (laughs) 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 And there was something so pathetic about him (laughs) climbing out of the pond. Completely drenched and pathetic, <laughs> trying to look as though nothing had happened. <laughs> and I mean, there was no way he could pull it off, but <laughs> he tried. And uh, I mean, I think this is what we all do, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, 
just trying to rearrange things so that we can feel okay about ourselves. So when things happen that are upsetting or difficult, there's a tremendous kind of shaking and a trembling and they're trying to find a place to re-establish a sense of all-rightness so that we can stand up and feel dignified, feel we're okay. This is what we do in the realm of samsara. This is why, in some ways, we're, we're so vulnerable. Like, sometimes you meet people who are just incredibly successful, you know, oozing with charisma, Lots of money, um, <laughs> surrounded by all kinds of, you know, beauty, um, and comfort, all the latest gadgets, big house, beautifully manicured lawn and flower beds, <laughs> and um, you meet these people who've kind of built themselves up on the outside. They've done everything they can to make a fortress for themselves, a castle for themselves. And yet, when you meet them, you just have this sense that inside they're so um, vulnerable. And that this outside, whether it be um, like physical, uh, physical surroundings, wealth, well-being, um, or um, just a very powerful personality, that um, in some sense they... They know that it's not going to do it, and yet they keep on building it up and building it up. And one has a sense that they're not unshakable, that they haven't found that unshakable deliverance of the heart. So for all of us, um, my sense is we're still um, vulnerable in some way. And the question is, well, how do we get less vulnerable? <laughs> you know, how, how do we find that, that firm standing place which is not shaken by the inevitable um, vicissitudes, the vicissitudes of um, this human realm. How can we find a firm standing place that is not shaken by the worldly winds, by praise, by blame, by success, by failure, by happiness, by suffering, um, by gain, by loss, by... Um, these, I think there's eight of them, I can never quite remember what they are, but... I know praise and blame, fame and um, obscurity, happiness and suffering, gain and loss, eight worldly winds. One of the things I've been emphasizing and that I'll continue to emphasize is the importance of the refuges, uh, to really make them real. 
and the word refuge itself. If we think of a refuge, a place of safety, somewhere that you can go to when uh, there's a storm, a place that you can find shelter and security. So these refuges are um, they're not a material thing, but they're a, a, an inner place of security, an inner place that we can go to, that we can have as a, a reference, a place of knowing, a place of presence, um, and the place of, of integrity or aspiration, and also drawing comfort from the fact of uh, all of the other beings who have practiced in this way and found peace. And the other thing that we can do is to uh, use the um, things that happen to us um, as way as um, well, grist for the mill. When we practice, uh, we can turn the events of our life to our advantage, even the most devastating things. Um, when we have this uh, understanding of the refuges, uh, we can use them to really strengthen that sense of refuge. Uh, without the refuge, it can be something that can completely destroy us. Um, you know, if we um, have placed all our um, uh, sense of security in, in having you know, pots of money in the bank or having a fine house or um, our relationships. Um, all of these things make us vulnerable because they can, they can disappear at any moment. Uh, or our health, our beauty, our vigor. Um, this too can, can change at any moment. Sometimes it's a gradual deterioration, um, just a slow wearing away, but uh, for some people it can happen very suddenly that uh, we lose these things. So the Buddha encouraged us to um, really contemplate everything that happens to us and to, to study it um, in order to um, find that uh, place of security. So um, I think one of the most fun pairs of worldly winds is praise and blame. Um, I don't know about you, but I actually quite like a bit of praise. <laughs> you know, when people say that was a really good talk, I, I, I do like it. <laughs> and if somebody blames me, um, I don't like that so much. 
I find that more difficult. Or if they criticise me for something. And even if they don't actually um, do it in words, if they don't respond, you know, in a, in a favourable way, or if if, if they um, uh, maybe ignore me or something, I can easily take that very personally as oh they don't like me, some sense of of um, rejection. Um, and we, you know, we can be very very sensitive to these things. Um, and particularly on retreat, you know, when we're not talking, well, I'm talking, but most of you aren't talking very much, um, little little gestures, little bits of body language, um, we can really take very, very personally. I remember one time in the monastery, just quite soon after I'd arrived, and uh, one of the monks, who... Uh, didn't smile. You know, I, <laughs> I was used to um, you know, smiling at people and people would smile back and I smiled and he didn't smile back and you know I was devastated. I felt terrible. <laughs> and I thought, oh he doesn't like me or I've done something wrong or I've you know I've blown it in some way. And um, and afterwards I thought about it and I thought, well actually he's probably just having a bit of a bad day. <laughs> Maybe it's nothing to do with me at all. And uh, it's interesting just to notice how um, strongly we can be affected, um, you know, certainly by actual blame. I mean, that's, that can be devastating to us. But you know, even something that um, was not intended for us at all, we can take very, very personally. So the Buddha encouraged us to really um, contemplate uh, praise and blame, you know, so that we're not, um, you know, we, we can enjoy praise, but we don't get carried away by it. We don't keep looking for it. We don't pin all of our sense of well-being on whether we've been praised or not. You know, we can get through life with, you know, sometimes being praised and sometimes not being praised. Uh, and we can we can cope with with being blamed, and even being blamed unfairly. Now that can be quite interesting to notice what happens when somebody um, criticizes us or accuses us of, some, of something that we definitely haven't done. We know we haven't done it. Um, how do we respond to that? Over these days, we've been practicing mindfulness. Practicing holding steady with conditions. Uh, avoiding reaching out and grasping and trying to make the nice ones last longer. And equally uh, trying to hold steady with the unpleasant ones, the difficult ones. Blame is a very interesting one. If we get blamed, uh, how do we respond to that? I've noticed in my own practice, I can either turn it inwards and feel really, really terrible, or I can retaliate. I can get really nasty. <laughs> uh, get back at somebody if they've hurt me, blamed me in some way. 
Or I can try to justify it. You find all kinds of reasons um, you know, why whatever it was that happened, happened. Another very interesting thing about blame, I don't know if you've noticed this, but if something goes wrong, um, you know, it can be something quite small. I can think of an example that's happened in the last few days, say on the retreat. It's nice to find examples, but anyway, if, if a small thing happens that's, uh, that, that goes wrong, there's a misunderstanding, uh, it can happen. And also, um, at a kind of um, bigger level, at a political level, you know, some, some, something awful happens, um, the immediate response of the media or in the case of the retreats, our immediate response is to look for someone to blame. Whose fault was it? Because we don't want to take responsibility. But can we just, um, you know, if we are blamed or if something happens, can we just hold steady? with that feeling, and cultivating that sense of unshakability. If we've done something wrong, can we bear when, when we're blamed? If we've not done something wrong, if we're blamed unfairly, can we hold steady with the feeling of being blamed? Or do we have to deflect it in some way? And we make peace with failure. We try to do something, but we don't succeed. We fail at it. And we put all our efforts into something. And it doesn't work out the way that we'd intended. How is it when we succeed, and when we do really well at something? Can we manage to stay steady with that? Not get, um, I mean, we can enjoy the feeling of pleasure, but not, not invest too much in that, in our success. It can um, uh, we can study this in very very small ways uh, during our our winter retreat we had a uh, a very small incident that um, I found very interesting um, I'd been 
contemplating a verse from the Dhammapada. I'm preparing for a, a study day on the Dhammapada, and um, I was just sort of looking through during the winter retreat, and there was one. Every now and again, I'd come across a verse that would kind of arrest my attention, and I you know, just take a little time to ponder it. And there was one verse: um, "Victory breeds hatred; the defeated live in pain. Happy are those who have gone beyond." victory and defeat. And it's the kind of verse that you think, oh yes, of course. <laughs> and uh, But I was kind of puzzled by this going beyond both victory and defeat. And uh, <coughs> there was a situation, we were, we, we were having our um, uh, we were having our, our um, meditation in the um, retreat center shrine room at Amarawati. And um, I actually had control of the light switch, which is a position of great power, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we were taking turns, myself and the senior monk were taking turns to lead the chanting. And I happened to know that the senior monk had a particular strategy with the chanting. Like in the evening, we would have the lights on so people could read the chanting. And in the morning, uh, he wanted to have the lights off um, as an incentive for people to learn the chanting. And so every evening, we would do the chanting with the lights on, and in the morning, the lights would be off. And... uh, I mean, I, the, the reason I knew this was because the first morning I switched the lights on and he told me to turn them off. He said, no, I didn't want the lights on, so okay. Anyway, about the second or third day, uh, one of the sisters who'd sort of been receiving some comments about the lights being off uh, said, um, oh, um, Bhante, can we have the lights on? And he said, No. And this was kind of in the middle of the whole community, and it was one of those kind of slightly awkward silences, and uh, everybody kind of had a thought about what had happened. <laughs> and uh, for me, it was a very... Um, it was the kind of situation where there could have been a sense of um, one person having won and the other person having lost like the person who had asked if the lights could have been put on and who hadn't had their way could have felt defeated and the one who had um, kind of had you know, had it done the way that they wanted could have felt like that, that, that they'd won. And I realized that there was another way of, of, of seeing that situation, that it wasn't about um, winning or losing or getting one's way, but more um, just that this is the way that we've decided to do it. Um, I don't know if I really explained that very well. But anyway, it, it, for me it was a very clear example of how we can uh, invest in having our way. And if we don't get our way, we can feel that we've failed and we can feel unhappy about it. Whereas if we make a suggestion, uh, just because it seems to us to be a good idea, on the understanding that it may, be, may not be something that everybody else would agree to, 
then um, when we don't, when it doesn't work out, we can feel it's all right. So it's to do with attachment to our ideas, attachment to a position, and to see how if we attach to a particular position, it does make us quite vulnerable. That's the point I was trying to make. Uh, it was interesting talking uh, with someone today about just being in community and how um, you know they can make suggestions, but realize that it may not happen that their suggestion is acted on, uh, that the decision is taken by the whole community. And that struck me as being like a very skillful way of um, holding one's bright ideas. Because uh, we tend... Well, certainly, I, I, I tend to, you know, if I have a good idea, um, then I don't actually like it if somebody doesn't agree with me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I usually want to have things work out my way. And, uh, but I can see how that actually makes me very vulnerable. Whereas if I can learn how to accept the fact that it may work out, according to what I want, or it may not, uh, then I have a much um, much more firmer footing. Um, so seeing the way that um, our attachments can make us very vulnerable may perhaps give us some sense of what this unshakability um, is um, referring to. Another word for unshakability is like equanimity, um, which um, is a very, it's, it's like the fourth, the fourth Brahma-vihara, the seventh enlightenment factor, um, the tenth paramita. It's, um, it's, a, it's a very big um, quality, upeka. And uh, sometimes this is translated as indifference, which uh, strikes me as being a very flat kind of uh, word, indifference. Does it really mean that the Buddha is just indifferent, that we're supposed to be indifferent? Um, indifferent to the happiness and to the suffering of humanity? Uh, was the Buddha indifferent to it? or? Was it talking about something else? Is this equanimity, this unshakability, something um, much larger? And when I was uh, trying to understand this, um, one of the things that helped me to come to a little bit more of an understanding of it was uh, some quite a number of years ago, just reading um, some of the suttas on the, the beginning of things. The Buddha talks about um, the... Um, well, he uses a number of very powerful similes to just give a sense of this human condition, this human realm, what it is that we're living in, what it is that we're a part of, and just how vast it all is. And um, he said something like, you know, what is, what is 
larger um, some mountain, Mount Meru, some huge, enormous, maybe Mount Everest, say, which is larger, Mount Everest, or um, the number of the, the, the pile of bones um, of all of the bodies that you've ever had in countless lifetimes. And uh, the answer is, well, the, 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 what, the number of bones, if you pile them all up, will be larger than Mount Everest. Uh, which is greater, the water in the four great oceans or the number of tears that have been shed over the loss of loved ones? The answer is the number of tears that have been lost, that have been shed over the, over the, love, the loss of loved ones. Which is greater, the water in the four great oceans, or the amount of blood that has been shed in in battles um, since the beginning of time? Um, somehow or other, um, just reading these suttas, there's a, a number of them in the Sanyutta Nikaya, uh, one of the chapters. Somehow, I I found that um, strangely comforting in relation to the things that one hears about these days. Um, whereas, I think in my practice I'd had the sense of, well, if I just practice hard enough, somehow or other, I'll, you know, the world will come right. <laughs> um, just this sort of subtle sense that somehow one could make things all right. And <clears throat> reading these suttas, just kind of gave a sense of the fact that it was completely hopeless. <laughs> that one was never going to sort out the world. Um, that beings have always you know, been horrible to each other. They've always been brutal. They've always been... Um, people have... Um, uh, loved and then grieved over the loss of loved ones. Um, and that, you know, for oneself there was going to be sorrow over the loss of loved ones. Um, and reading this just sort of somehow or other took, took a great weight off my shoulders. I realized that, you know, this is not something um, that I can get rid of or that I can make all right. Um, but I can bear it. Actually, I'm not sure if I can bear it much of the time. <laughs> but I can see that human beings, that there is the capacity, like, say, for the enlightened one, the Buddha, the Arahants, uh, Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, uh, that there is the capacity within the human heart to bear it. Uh, and I find that very, it's like something to aspire towards. But it's not a, a shutting down or a blanking out. But in a way, this, this practice um, leads to a, a, an ever-increasing sensitivity. You know, as we become more aware of our own suffering, if, as, the, as the capacity of the heart increases to be able to um, bear with our own suffering, our own pain, sorrow. Um, and equally, uh, saying, 
our own gladness and joy. <laughs> um, the capacity to um, uh, bear with the pain and suffering and sorrow of others um, seems to increase. You know, sometimes we think compassion is making everything all right. I'm going to help you. Oh, you poor thing, let me help you. But um, true compassion is, is a very different quality, is my sense of it, where there's a, an entering in uh, to um, the pain of another. So no longer is there a sense of me and you, but there's just an abiding um, with another, with their sorrow, with um, whatever it is that they may be um, going through. Or maybe we're with somebody who's dying, just being able to stay steady when someone is going through that process um, can be the, the greatest support that we can offer to one another. Rather than finding some way of the, the, the inner manipulation to kind of make things all right according to how we think they should be. Can we just hold steady with how things are? If we, when we can do this, that's when there's a real sense of, of peacefulness. That's like bringing peace into the world. Not to say that there's anything wrong with um, like peace marches or having a campaign for peace, but this has to come from a place of peacefulness. Otherwise, it just stirs everybody up and creates more of a sense of agitation. So to see that peacefulness begins with our own heart, and finding that place of steadiness, So equanimity, this um, unshakability, just being able to um, bear with the the sorrows, the pain, the confusion, uh, the fear, the um, frightening um, things that happen that we hear about, um, rather than being pulled into this kind of agitation uh, this reaction, this looking around for someone to blame. It can sound very passive, all of this. Sometimes Buddhists are accused of being just so, so passive that they never do anything. They just sit and bear it. But um, what Buddhists, or as Buddhists, what well, what I would suggest, what I try to do, is uh, not to react to things. So my response comes from a place of stillness, a place of wisdom, a place of clarity, a place of discernment, rather than simply reacting, trying to make things all right because I'm agitated by what has happened. 
we begin to see how the greatest service that we can do for humanity at these times is to cultivate this unshakeability so that no matter how bad, how awful the news is, no matter how difficult our own situation is or the situation of somebody else's, we can hold steady. Knowing that this is how it is. And this is the only way that it can be. This is, cut, this is, this is how it is because of what has gone before. And if we react, we simply perpetuate that cycle of agitation. But if we hold steady, then the wisdom, the compassion, the clarity can arise that um, enables us to know how to respond. It's not something we think about necessarily, and sometimes we think about it, but very often it's just an instinctive response. It may just be that we sit still and we don't say anything. Just cultivating this quiet, peaceful presence that um, allows things to come into balance. And sometimes when I've been very sick, um, people have come and they've tried to make things all right. I remember one time somebody coming and saying, oh yes, well I had the same thing years ago. That didn't make it all right. Or, oh, what you need to do is this. That didn't make it all right. The thing that made it all right was somebody who could just sit quietly there, who wasn't in a hurry to cheer me up or whatever, but who was able to sit quietly there with me, uh, whatever it was I was going through. to enable me to actually know that I had the capacity to make it all right for myself. And that the quality of peacefulness was what enabled me to find that sense of inner stillness and well-being. It was really extraordinary (laughs) how it happened. So just to realize that this is something that we can do for ourselves, it's something we can do for humanity, Um, it's not a small thing. So how do we get there? By being present with our own inner unease. By noticing the trembling, the agitation. And just more and more just to come to that place of mindfulness, that place of presence that allows the agitation to settle. Holding steady. So the verse in the um, Mahamangala Sutta, the final verse, which is uh, what I was quoting from in some way, like, though living in the world, yet one's heart may, one's heart remains unshaken, or does not tremble 
free from um, sorrow, need, and fear. Those are the things that one is free from. And uh, that this is the greatest blessing. So it's the final verse of um, a longish sutta with many different um, causes of blessing. And uh, the ranging from just associating associating with, with good friends, with wise people, uh, having reverence, respect for those who are worthy of reverence and respect. Um, having a skillful profession, having supporting one's parents, one's family, um, cultivating right speech, uh, refraining from intoxication, um, cultivating a heart of gratitude and contentment, cultivating patience, cultivating the insight into the Four Noble Truths. I mean, these are just some of the blessings that are mentioned in this sutta. And then the final blessing, Though living in the world, it's not that we go away to a cave somewhere and shut the world out. Though living in the world, yet the heart remains unshaken, free from sorrow, confusion, need. This is the greatest blessing. So I offer this to you reflection this evening.